Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome. Uh, we're, we're meeting tonight to discuss uh, the Human Rights Watch report, um, a threshold crossed, Israeli authorities and the crimes of apartheid and persecution. We have uh, three distinguished speakers. Uh, I'd like to introduce them uh, and give each one uh, around 15 minutes to uh, address um, uh, kind of general questions that I will pose. Uh, we have uh, Ms. Akshaya Kumar, uh, who's the Director of Crisis Advocacy at Human Rights Watch. Uh, she oversees the organization's advocacy response to emergencies and develops in innovative strategies to respond to evolving crises. Ms. Kumar joined uh, Human Rights Watch as uh, Deputy United Nations Director in 2015 and represents the organization at the United Nations headquarters in, in New York, uh, represented the, the organization for four years there. Uh, she's, uh, she previously worked as, uh, at the ENOUGH project with, uh, where she helped launch the Sentry, um, an initiative that seeks to freeze war criminals out of the fin international financial system. Welcome to uh, Ms. Kumar, and we, we look forward to hear from you about the report. Uh, I'd like also to introduce now uh, our other speakers, uh, Ms. Sahar Francis, who uh, works since 2006, has directed or worked as the general director of the Ramallah-based Abamir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, uh, a Palestinian NGO providing legal and, uh, and uh, advocacy support to Palestinian prison, political prisoners in the Israeli and Palestinian prisons. Uh, she's an attorney uh, by training and uh, has joined the association in 1998, uh, first as a human rights lawyer and then as the head of the legal unit at, at the association. Uh, she has a long experience as a human rights uh, lawyer uh, defending, uh, uh, working on issues of uh, 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 housing rights and, and many other uh, um, uh, issues that uh, Palestinian, Palestinian communities face and face under the Israeli occupation. Uh, she, uh, she's also the uh, a member of the board of uh, the Defense for Children International, the Palestine section, uh, she, she, she has been a member of that board of the board of that association for four years and also served uh, at the board of the Union of Agriculture Work Committees. Uh, I will uh, also introduce, uh, of course, welcome uh, Sahar and we look forward to hear your uh, discussion of the report. Uh, we also have our with us uh, Dr. Anis Qasim. Uh, who is an international lawyer based in Amman. Uh, he's the chief editor of the Palestine Yearbook of International Law. Uh, he helped make the, the Palestinian the case before the International Court of Justice, which resulted in the uh, advisory opinion on July 9th, uh, 2004, affirming the illegality of Israel's uh, separation wall and its associated regime. Uh, so welcome to all of you. Uh, we're uh, honored to have you with us. Um, we're addressing a very big issue and a very important report. 
Um, uh, I'll, I'll just just framing framing the discussion. I'll, I'll give you as as, as I said, uh, each of each of you fifteen minutes, uh, and uh, I would like to hear about maybe three three issues, and I'll give you the choice, of course, to choose whichever uh, point of view or other questions you would like to address. Um, of course, we're we're, we're we're curious about the timing of the report, its context, uh, and its frame, uh, its, its uh, kind of uh, scope, uh, uh, and also, uh, of course, the major findings of the report. What is the uh, the, 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 the major kind of uh, stress or findings. Um, as you know, many of these issues has been addressed by people, uh, organizations before. So, so what is the, uh, the, the main kind of uh, finding which uh, Human Rights Watch uh, discovered, you know, reports about in, in this report. Um, and also, of course, the, 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 concern, the, 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 the uh, third, question or, or topic, which is very important to many of us, which is how do we instru instrumentalize these kind of, this kind of language of speaking about Israel's crimes and uh, apartheid regime. Uh, um, and of course, I, I see this is not only a legal issue, it's a political and cultural issue. So that there are interaction between all these spheres how do we see this report being uh, instrumentalized as a step in a in a in a in a, in a larger kind of uh, a moment as a larger you know uh, a, 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 a movement uh, towards change? Um, so I'll, I'll just uh, um, uh, I think this is this is a lot to talk about for, for uh, all of us. So I'll, I'll, as I said, I'll give you the, the choice to uh, choose, the, the freedom to choose uh, where to begin and how to address these, these issues. You have 15 minutes, then uh, uh, we'll have a, a Q&A session and we'll open to the discussion to the audience. So uh, those who are interested, they can pose their question via uh, the chat uh, to, to us. Okay, so uh, Ms. Kumar, please, yeah. you have the floor. Thank you, Munir, and um, thank you all for joining and tuning in. It's really wonderful to see almost 100 participants uh, coming to attend this webinar at this moment. Uh, thank you for the framing questions. Indeed, um, this is a question we have received quite a bit, which is, why now? Um, for many Palestinians, um, the point is, that we have known this reality for a very long time and we have been waiting for others to say it. So why did it take Human Rights Watch to this point in this moment and why do we speak now? I think the first answer is that we should call something what it is and uh, we have done the research, the analysis, we take a very legalistic approach at our organization and so we compared the facts as we've documented them over decades now to the law as it is uh, written in the Apartheid Convention and the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, and we drew our conclusions. We also feel like we're at a very unique moment because these conclusions will not just hang in the air. There is an opportunity for the ICC itself to take up 
our analysis as it conducts its own investigation, because the International Criminal Court's prosecutor has now confirmed through the chambers of the court that she does have the jurisdiction, the authority to look into these issues. And so we are urging the International Criminal Court to take not just our evidence, but the evidence of many groups that have come before us to into account as they make their own determination about the kinds of crimes which they would like to investigate. Um, but more broadly at Human Rights Watch, we seek to join a movement that has been trying to shift the focus away from exclusively discussing a conflict mediation or a conflict resolution lens, one that justifies abuses and violations and oppression in the service of finding an eventual peaceful resolution. Instead, we say that we need to focus on both the governments of the world and the international community more generally to the abuses themselves, to the reality, because this occupation is now going for um, generations. Uh, we have seen the impact of the systemic domination here and continuing to avert our eyes in the service of saying that a peace process will come is not justifiable. But the evidence basically has left us no choice. Over the past several years, we have found enough evidence to uh, come to the conclusion that Israeli authorities are committing both the crimes of apartheid and the crimes of persecution. We identify those as crimes against humanity. And we do a legal analysis uh, just to go to our findings where we show three elements, that there's an intent to dominate um, of one group over another. And here we identify Jewish Israelis as one group and Palestinians, whether they're living in occupied Gaza or the West Bank or East Jerusalem, or even inside um, the, the rest of Israel, Green Line Israel, we identify them as being the group that is being dominated. And we identify a broader context of systematic oppression uh, and certain inhumane acts. And these inhumane acts were the ones that we sought to document in detail in our 200 page report. Uh, I can make sure that we circulate a link to the report as well, but we look at issues from forced evictions, which have been in the news media recently, to land seizures, to restrictions on freedom of movement, uh, lack of access to municipal services. And we point to all of this because uh, I think it's very important that we've seen now a shift, even in the discourse in the recent escalation in Gaza, to a recognition that we need to connect that flashpoint of violence to the broader systematic root causes of discrimination. And that's what our report also seeks to do. We seek to link uh, the situation in Sheikh Jarrah with forced evictions. We seek to link the attacks upon um, worshipers at Al-Aqsa Mosque to the broader systematic oppression that Palestinians are suffering at the hands of Israeli authorities. Um, some have asked us, is this the first time that Human Rights Watch has used the term apartheid or has identified the crime of apartheid? The answer is no. We have made previously this characterization about the Rohingya Muslim population of Myanmar who live in Rakhine state in a system where they also are systematically oppressed, where they're dominated, where there are restrictions on their access to healthcare, on their access to movement, where their very recognition as a people is at risk. Uh, and 
this was something we made a conclusion one year ago. And now one month ago, we have come to this conclusion about the situation for Palestinians. So for Human Rights Watch as a global organization, this has been very important to speak to interlocutors and say, this is an approach we take around the world. We apply the facts as we see them to the law as we understand it. This is not about focusing on one situation to the exclusion of others. Uh, but it is about speaking truth and having the courage to identify something as we find it. It's also important to note that coming to a conclusion about the crime of apartheid has legal consequences and we intend to pursue those avenues for accountability and justice. Uh, so I wanted to briefly focus on some of the um, positive developments we've seen since we as Human Rights Watch have made this determination. But before I do that, I thought I should just mention, of course, that we're not the first organization to even make this characterization. There have been such legal findings by Beit Salem, by Al-Haq, by other Palestinian groups. Um, so we just come one in a long line of this work. But in the one month since Human Rights Watch has come out with our report, we have seen some promising developments. One um, is that the president of South Africa, who would be a person who has quite a bit of understanding, familiarity, and commitment to preserving the meaning of the crime of apartheid as a crime, has publicly spoken to the news media, to Sky News, to say that he believes what is happening to the Palestinians at the hands of Israeli authorities does match. It has elements of apartheid in it. Uh, we think this is important because now we will see, we hope, greater leadership from countries like South Africa and Namibia who have experienced apartheid themselves at the United Nations to say that we eradicated this crime in our own countries and now we must try to uh, find a solution for the Palestinian people as well. Um, the second development that we've seen is at the UN Human Rights Council. For the first time, uh, of course, we know the Human Rights Council has created inquiries in the past about Gaza, about war crimes, but last week, for the first time, they created an inquiry that extends into Israel itself. Um, this is an inquiry that looks not just at war crimes, but also systematic discrimination at root causes, and it's one where the investigators are being asked to preserve evidence to build case files, to identify perpetrators. And we find this very encouraging because we're moving from a system where we're simply talking about issues or identifying them to looking for paths to justice and accountability. And the best path is to have an international body like the one that's been created come to the same conclusion that many of us have come to, uh, whether it's our organization or others um, who have looked at these facts. Uh, so the creation of this Commission of Inquiry is indeed um, very encouraging. It's also an ongoing Commission of Inquiry, which means it won't end after one year. It's not simply about the past um, 11 days in Gaza and aerial bombardment and exchange of rocket fire. It's about the much broader system of um, the intent to dominate and the system of oppression. Uh, the last point to add is, of course, that we have seen quite a bit of backlash uh, from um, those in uh, different parts of the Western media. Uh, there have been accusations that making this determination is anti-Semitic, accusations that there is bias, but I think what has been really important to note is there have been very few rebuttals of the facts themselves, whether it's by the Israeli authorities or by others who are seeking to support their cause. 
they have been left with simply attacking the messenger, the individuals, the people involved in this report, as opposed to the actual legal analysis and conclusions. And I think that's really quite important because it shows that perhaps they don't want to engage on a battle of the facts. So they prefer to engage on a battle of ad hominem attack. Uh, so just to close, uh, I'm looking forward to a rich discussion around this report and also as Palestinians, what you see, um, the value that comes from an international organization like ours being able to add its voice and its analysis, um, our rigorous work to the broader case file on this issue. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you very much uh, for your uh, presentation and your commitment. Um, I would uh, maybe move now to uh, Sahar and, and then we'll have the discussion and, and Sahar you're also free to address you know uh, any any aspect of this issue yeah really thanks a lot uh, for this opportunity and thank you uh, Akashia for the uh, wonderful presentation and actually yes we asked also ourselves what's why now? But it's never too late, even if we expected this to come from Human Rights Watch much before. And allow me also to highlight another report, a very important report that also came late, but at least it was produced that Born uh, Without Rights that discussed actually the fact that Israel, uh, and, and this is a perfect example about how the military system were used by the occupiers as a, a controlling system against the Palestinians and imposing all the military orders that defines all political parties as illegal organizations and enabling them uh, to arrest hundreds of thousands of Palestinian activists students, uh, journalists, uh, children, parliamentarians, and uh, so on. And denying in a very systematic way the right of the Palestinian people for uh, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of political activism, and being uh, active in opposing the occupation and resisting the occupation and uh, using actually the international law, especially the, the international humanitarian law in order to justify these uh, military courts that they were uh, developing since uh, the first years of the occupation immediately after the occupation. So this is why I thought it's a very important development on the international level that we have these two reports coming from a, a, a very uh, important, uh, uh, reliable and uh, uh, organization that the international community will trust their findings. And they cannot say that they are really biased because uh, 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 really, if you review the two reports, it's based on a very thorough investigation and factual uh, uh, collections for years uh, uh, that uh, uh, was concluded in these two reports. And I think the timing is just perfect because what we were seeing in the last couple of years, beside the uh, forced eviction in Sheikh Jarrah and how things developed in uh, uh, Damascus Gate and in Al-Aqsa and the war on Gaza, 
it was always accompanied with this mass arrest campaign that the Israeli occupation forces launched in East Jerusalem and in the West Bank. But the shocking was as well that this is expanded to the uh, uh, 48 areas and it's just continuing this mass arrest campaign that the police actually uh, launched after the end of the war intensified it actually in 48 areas after the end of the war and uh, uh, bringing order back the name that they gave to this uh, campaign illustrates the, uh, uh, the intent for the control because like these uh, Palestinians, they are the citizens of the state, they have the right to demonstrate and to say their opposition very clearly against the policies of the uh, government, and now they would be punished for this. Uh, just to give a bit statistics, more than 2,100 people were arrested so far since the 9th of May inside 48 and 150 uh, um, charge sheets were submitted, but it doesn't mean just for 150 people because in one charge sheet, it could be including several uh, uh, people. And most of these uh, uh, detainees and the charge sheets were uh, submitted against Palestinians, of course, like Israeli uh, Jews were arrested, but this is, uh, also highlights the discriminating policies in implementing the same uh, uh, justice system, the civil system inside Israel between Palestinians and Jews who were demonstrating and uh, going out to the street in this period. There is a slight difference as well in the facts and the description of the crimes that these detainees will face later in the court. Of course, uh, um, I don't think we would have enough time to discuss in a very deep way the uh, whole issue of the military court system that was developed. But I think the uh, military system, including the military orders and the uh, military courts that was imposed in the occupied territories since 67 till today, really illustrates this uh, uh, persecution and apartheid uh, intent uh, uh, because uh, it also proved that there was no uh, um, will at all uh, since day one of the occupation that this occupation would be uh, temporary and it will last in one day. They were planning from day one how to control the uh, territories that they will occupy in 67, because the, the, the whole structure of the military court plan was ready uh, uh, in 1963, 64. And this is was uh, uh, this like Meir uh, Shimgar, um, who used to be the chief uh, judge in the high court, wrote this in one of his articles. He admitted that when he was the military prosecutor, they were ready with the plan how to develop the military system. And it's very clear that uh, when they decided not to respect the international law, the international humanitarian law about the jurisdiction and the description and the uh, uh, procedures under uh, this system, because um, as we uh, all know that the international humanitarian law allows 
for the occupiers to prosecute uh, uh, people, civilians, especially under uh, the occupation in military courts, but in very certain conditions and under uh, uh, very strict uh, conditions and circumstances. So thousands of military orders were issued in these uh, uh, years in order to affect every aspect of our uh, daily life on the uh, uh, political level, on the civil level. They interfered in the health, in the education, in uh, uh, housing, like no one were able to build his house without securing a, a special permit from the civil administration under the Israelis and if he built without a permit, this is would be considered an, a, a crime act and he would be prosecuted in front of the military courts and the military committees and so on. So it wasn't just about security issues and all the claim that they are protecting their security or keeping the order for the people, like keeping the public order and the normal life. Because if we take the cases that the Israeli High Court justified confiscating lands in the occupied territories, for example, the uh, very famous case about the road 443 that connects the West Bank with Tel Aviv that was uh, built on Palestinian land that uh, it wasn't for at all security uh, uh, need. The High Court claimed that this is for the benefit of the Palestinian people. At the end of the day, in the Second Intifada, the Palestinian people were banned from using this uh, road. Till today, it's not open freely for Palestinians to travel on this. And this is uh, another example about the discriminating because all settlers living in the occupied territories, they can freely access these uh, road systems that the occupation developed in order to control physically the expansion of the Palestinian cities, the connection between. This is how they actually ended up with this pantostance uh, uh, design that we are keep talking about. Of course, uh, settlers are not subjected for the jurisdiction of the military court. Although uh, theoretically the military law should apply and military courts can actually prosecute settlers, but uh, on the ground, uh, uh, the military prosecution refused to bring settlers in front of these courts. And even in the more uh, uh, serious cases, like the, uh, the last case of the settlers who burned the Dawabshi family, they were prosecuted in the district court in Elud. And one of the uh, um, settlers, he's a minor, he was tortured in interrogation, and the court cancelled one of his confessions that was obtained out of torture in the court. This is a very, very rare scenario with the Palestinian uh, detainees. Hundreds of thousands uh, would be tortured and ill-treated. Samir Arbid almost died under interrogation in 2019. Till today, uh, 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 like the general uh, prosecutor decided to close the investigation in the torture case of Samir Arbid. Uh, as I said, the issue of imprisonment and the military courts procedures not just reflects the discriminating policies via the differences in the level of the sentences on the uh, procedures themselves uh, and uh, pre-trial detention, for example, 
in the military court, it could be for 70 days under interrogation, where in the Israeli law, it's 30 days and so on. There's lots of discriminating policies, but as well, we think that uh, uh, today, if we review the development in these military courts, all these uh, 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 five decades, we discovered that the Israelis were extending their own civil system into the military uh, system. And this is not allowed according to the international law. They are not allowed to bring their own uh, uh, rules of criminal procedures and uh, uh, um, um, evidence procedures to impose them on the occupied territories. Definitely when we think that the Palestinian lawyers are not trained trained enough, for example, to act according to these rules and procedures and to follow the president cases that issued inside Israel in district courts and the high court in the criminal uh, cases. So the uh, whole military court system with the military orders, I think it's a very problematic system that the Israeli occupation were using intentionally and for long years uh, as a tool to oppress and to control the Palestinians. And the report of Human Rights Watch is bringing a very uh, important legal analysis for us, those who works on the ground. Although I totally agree that it's not the first time, it will not be the last time several local organizations with other also Israeli and international organizations, uh, we always bring the issue of apartheid, but I think now with this report, it would be another added value to use this framework in order to uh, maybe reactivate the committee uh, um, against apartheid in the international level in order to enforce the governments that they have uh, obligations to end such a situation. This is the added value of the framework of apartheid and persecution. It's not just about accountability, it's also ending the uh, situation. So I would stop here and uh, be happy to answer uh, in the questions. Thank you again. Thank, thank you, Sahar. Uh, thank you very much for your uh, presentation. Uh, I'll uh, move, move now to Dr. Anis, and then we'll uh, open. We have we have already questions in the Q and A in the chat, uh, but, but we'll we'll wait uh, for for the uh, last presentation, and then we'll open for this for, for discussion of the questions. Uh, Dr. Anis, please. Thank you, thank you, Munir. And uh, at the outset, I would like really to commend. Uh, Human Rights Watch for this very daring report. Um, especially it comes as part two of their 2019 report, Born Without Civil Rights. Um, these two reports are really milestones um, in establishing the apartheid system of the declared sole democracy in the Middle East, the state of Israel. No doubt that the report is comprehensive. 
has dealt with the apartheid from the legal point of view or beginning with the legal point of view in defining what apartheid is all about, the legal requirements of apartheid being the domination and suppression and using the state machinery to sanction all these practices and to identify the inhuman uh, acts that the State of Israel is exercising against the Palestinian community inside the green light and inside the occupied territories as well. In other words, the report established that the crime of apartheid in historical Palestine is universal. It's no difference between what's happening in the 1948 um, Palestinians and the 1967 Palestinians. It is all the same. Um, maybe they ch uh, change under different titles, but basically they are the same. Um, this report, I said it is uh, very important and very courageous report because it comes in line with other reports like Betselem, like Al-Haq, um, and this building literature uh, on, on the practices of Israel in the occupied territories against the Palestinians. It was a taboo to criticize Israel or to mention any word uh, about Israeli practices because Israel keeps saying that we are a besieged state, we are encircled state into a hostile environment, therefore we are compelled to take these steps um, and to use these abusive measures against the Palestinians. These reports now, they reveal beyond any doubt that it is not accidental. The practice of the State of Israel in the occupied territories, and I'm saying occupied, meaning 48 and 67. These practices were not accidental. They were not happened by chance or the circumstances forced Israel to practice this. Um, let's take an example, more than one example. We can take several examples to demonstrate that this apartheid policy is in the DNA of the State of Israel. Because in 1950, when there was no resistance, the Palestinians were expelled, living across the borders. There were about 160,000 Palestinians lived or remained in historical Palestine. Israel enacted the law of return in 1950. The law of return in its first article says, every Jew in the world has the right to come to Israel. Every Jew. So we are talking immediately from 1950. That is about Jewish rights. 
not Palestinian, not security rights, not um, any kind of rights. It's only Jewish rights. When, when Ben-Gurion submitted the draft law of the law of return to the Knesset, he said, this is the charter we promised every Jew to declare when we established the state of Israel. So it was a charter. Now, two years later, Israel passed the nationality law. The nationality law says that every Jew who comes to Israel as, under the law of return will become immediately, I'm quoting the law, immediately will become an Israeli citizen. He does not have to apply for citizenship. He does not have to show uh, or to take an oath of allegiance for, to the new state. He does not have to stay for a certain period of time to learn Hebrew. He will be immediately given the Israeli citizenship as long as he is a Jew. Now, above all of this, in 1952 also, there was the status law that was signed between the State of Israel and the World Zionist Organization. The status law gives the World Zionist Organization the right to recruit Jews from all over the world, bring them to Israel, and allocate for them Palestinian land for the settlement of Jewish settlers. Everything was established from the early days of the State of Israel, before there was an occupation of 67, before there was the element of risk of Palestinians of 48. It was inherent in the state legislation that everything, everything will be drawn, betwe drawn between Jewish and non-Jewish citizens or individuals. We should not be surprised, actually, because the state of Israel declared itself as the state of the Jewish people. That is officially in the Declaration of Independence, which says we are the state of the, the sovereign state of the Jewish people. This statement was echoed later on in the nationality in the nation state law in 2018 which declared that the land of israel is the sovereign land of the jewish people the word jewish people set the stage to draw and distinguish between two things in the world not only in israel there is there is a law in israel which says uh, a Jew is who comes to the state of Israel as uh, under the law of return and the rest of the world. So the world is divided along these Zionist uh, jurisprudential lines, a Jew and a non-Jew. The Jewish people has all the rights. The land is for the Jewish people and it is registered in the land registry in Israel as the inalienable property of the Jewish people. The inalienable property. To demonstrate 
the discriminatory aspects of the Israeli legislation, let's take um, the civil and, and uh, uh, social rights of Palestinians who are citizens of the state of Israel. A Palestinian in the state of Israel can elect and be elected. There are members of the Knesset who are Palestinians. That's no problem. But this Knesset member, if he claims to recover 10 square meters of his land that was confiscated by the Jewish National Fund or the Jewish agency, the judge will tell him, sorry, to me, you are an absentee under the absentee property law. So this Knesset member who is a present in the Knesset, if he claims his land or part of his land or 10 square meter of his land, he is an absentee. And that is the type of discrimination we are witnessing. Now, let's This report, the Human Rights Watch report, without minimizing the importance of this report, which I think it is very important and adds to the literature that is being built up on disclosing the very nature of Israel as a racist and apartheid state. What is missing in this report, again, and I'm not subtracting from its importance and value, is that in a state of Israel, these things, discrimination, racial discrimination, apartheid is not accidental, as I said earlier, because the report did not address the fundamental cause of this, which is the idea of Zionism. Without explaining the doctrine of Zionism, we will never understand the behavior of Israel as a racist state. In the Israeli legislation, everything is drawn between Jew and non-Jew. Actually, it is not only Jew and non-Jew, it is between Jewish people nationals and non-Jewish people nationals. We have to tell the difference between these two concepts. The Jewish people is a phrase coined by the founder of political Zionism, Theodor Herzl, when he said, we have to discover, to declare ourselves as a nation to claim our right to self-determination. And he did. And in that state, the right to self-determination is only limited to the Jewish people. And that is what the nation state law of 2018 now codified, that Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people. The Jewish people concept as a political concept is not a political concept. It makes a difference between saying a Jew and a national of the Jewish people. There is a a difference in jurisprudence. In the Jewish religion, a Jew 
is a person who is born to a Jewish mother or convert to Judaism, even if he abandoned Judaism to another religion. He could be a Christian, but still he is a Jew. When Zionism came, the national of the Jewish people is different. Zionism took the first part of the definition, which is a Jew is a person who is born to a Jewish mother or a convert to Judaism, provided that he is not a member of another religion. The difference is obvious that Judaism has been converted into a nationality. And that's what established discrimination and racism in the jurisprudence of Zionism. Um, and I think, I think we can go ahead with this and explain more uh, about Zionism. And I wish that the next, next report of the Human Rights Watch is to deal with this shortcoming in its report. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Uh, Anis, for, uh, for your uh, uh, thoughtful um, uh, discussion and, and uh, pointing to the larger context and the root causes, um, the jurisdictions uh, uh, that uh, are foundational for the state of Israel. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I mean, this is, of course, uh, as a historical dimension which is uh, important to take into consideration. Um, and, and of course, the, the land regime and the, the, the determination of the settler, it's, it's a lot of, there, there's a lot of theoretical discussion about settler colonialism and how it works. Um, so uh, maybe the two discourses, the theoretical, theoretical critical discourse, uh, historical uh, critical discourse and, and the legal juridical discourse could be enriched, co-enriching in a sense. Um, <clears throat> we, have, we have a set of questions, um, which I'm not, I'm not sure how I, I, um, I moved these questions, I sent them to the uh, intended speakers. Uh, so maybe uh, I'll just uh, mention the main points of the questions and let you address these questions if you if you if you'd like uh, there's one one uh, actually there are um, points and questions um, there's uh, one uh, note uh, about the international uh, court, uh, law the the international humanitarian law and 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 the the uh, state of occupation uh, state of war uh, this is i i moved i i uh, forwarded to Sahar because I think she, she mentioned that. Um, so maybe Sahar, you could, you could speak about this uh, briefly. But the, most of the questions uh, were about the report itself. So uh, Ms. Kumar maybe will, will, address, uh, will address these questions. Uh, one question is about the applicability of the, of, uh, of the term apartheid. Uh, 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 to the Israel, to the Palestinian citizens if, in Israel, one question wasn't sure how how does this work. I think uh, Dr. Anis um, uh, made the case, but maybe you'd like to add 
from from the uh, human rights watch uh, perspective on this on this question um uh, so let's start with these two questions and then uh, take other questions because uh, otherwise we might uh, lose uh, order so uh, Sahar, would you, would you like to address this issue? Yeah, so briefly, but before, because I think someone wanted me to repeat which other report uh, Human Rights uh, Watch published, Born Without uh, Rights, correct? Uh, Civil Rights. I, yeah, it was published in 2019, actually. At, okay. it, also, it's very highly recommended. On the question of the IHL, actually, Israel violates IHL uh, since the first day of the occupation, not just because they uh, uh, prosecute Palestinians for uh, um, issues and cases that is not included in the uh, IHL uh, conditions and restrictions that they imposed on the uh, um, um, ability to establish military courts, but uh, much beyond uh, this, uh, uh, we argue in a Bamir after 30 years of experience in this military system that they violate the geographical jurisdiction that uh, uh, some of these actions would be considered extraterritorial enables the courts actually extraterritorial jurisdiction activities that takes place in Europe in other countries could be uh, 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 prosecuted in front of the court based on the claim that it's causing threat, serious threat to the security of the region or uh, the state of Israel. They violate the international law in the definition of the crimes that the uh, 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 international law enabled in the procedures and the fair trial standards that these military courts are not uh, uh, respecting the fair trial standards and definitely on the cases of child detainees, uh, arbitrary detention, which is the administrative detention policy that is used and are inter, uh, uh, in the military courts, the torture, ill treatment and so on. Actually, there's, I would recommend if people are more interested on the prisoners issue to visit our website as adomir.org. Uh, uh, um, maybe I can write it as well in the chat, uh, uh, the website of the organization. You would have lots of reports uh, and analysis about the case of the prisoners. Okay, uh, thank you, Sahar. Uh, I think we're getting um, uh, lots of uh, feedback and, and questions. Uh, maybe we, we um, uh, someone asked for uh, uh, sharing, sharing the link for the report on, on chat. Um, so I'll, 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 I'll do that. Uh, um, Akshaya, would you like to address some of these questions that you received? Um, Yes, um, yeah. I'm happy to do that. Uh, thank you, sure. and thank you to um, Dr. Anissa and Sahar for the really uh, powerful um, presentations and also for the challenge from Dr. Anis on, on the report scope. Um, so to begin with the question about um, our analysis, 
is the crime of apartheid, um, does that extend to the treatment of Palestinians in Israel itself? Um, when you read our report, you will find um, a lot of analysis that covers the situation inside Green Line Israel. Um, but you will see that there are, um, as Dr. Anis mentioned, there are varying degrees of rights um, that are accorded by Israeli Jewish authorities to Palestinians, whether they are um, Palestinians who are living inside uh, the state of Israel or in under occupation. Uh, our analysis is that there are three elements to the crime of apartheid. There's an intent to dominate. We argue that this intent to dominate is evident from the river to the sea, which means in all of the areas we examined, including um, Palestinians inside Israel itself. Um, we also look at a system of oppression, a, a context of oppression, and we find this context exists as well. Um, but the inhumane acts, what we show where the three elements come together, we have focused on examples from the occupied Palestinian territories and including some of the examples that Sahar mentioned with relation to military courts where settlers are not brought to military courts, while uh, all of the military prosecutions have either involved um, Palestinians under occupation or in the case of um, citizens, um, they've involved Palestinian citizens of Israel. Uh, and so we, we have used examples that cross the border, um, but we show by and large that the elements of the crime comes together in the occupied territories. This is not to exclude a further analysis as Dr. Anis has laid out today, and as we may lay out in the future as the International Criminal Court itself may look at to look into Israel itself. But our focus in, in the 200 page report shows that the intent to dominate exists from from the river to the sea. This system of oppression also exists, uh, including in Israel itself, and then the inhumane acts we focused on um, inside the occupied territories. There are a few questions here about enforcing and implementing the report and how to take it forward. Um, indeed, this is actually the role that I'm tasked with at Human Rights Watch. So we have different divisions inside our organization. We have researchers, people who um, gather facts. We have legal experts who do analysis. And then we have an advocacy team of which I'm part um, to think strategically about various channels to enforce and implement the report. So you'll see that the report has many recommendations to the state of Israel, including to end its commission of the crimes of humanity, of apartheid and persecution. But we also have recommendations to other states, um, including to states at the United Nations to establish a commission of inquiry, which has happened through the Human Rights Council. And this commission tackles the issue of systematic discrimination, which we think opens the door for it to draw its own conclusion about the crime of apartheid, which could be quite powerful. Um, we also see potential at the UN General Assembly. Um, there will be an event coming up and I can post a link to it in the chat. It's going to be hosted uh, by the um, state of Palestine, the government of South Africa, the government of Namibia jointly together with the Nelson Mandela Center that looks exactly at this issue of what the United Nations can do, whether it's to bring back the committee, which Sahad referenced, or create a new envoy or a new role to address the eradication of the crime of apartheid. And we think this is a very important event and a moment to bring forward some of this analysis into the diplomatic 
magic community. Um, there's a question here about um, what we think will happen in the ICC after HRW is presenting its recent report. So I should mention that I, I know Palestinian organizations have for years presented their own reports and findings to the ICC prosecutor. So we use the same procedure. We submitted our report and findings and evidence. Um, some of you may be aware the prosecutor will be changing uh, from uh, Fatou Ben Souda, who's a Gambian jurist who has been the prosecutor until now, um, to Karim Khan, who's uh, a UK uh, jurist who had previously been leading uh, inquiry team in Iraq, uh, looking at the crimes of the Islamic State or Daesh. Uh, so he will now be the prosecutor of the Inter International Criminal Court. And so we need to put in front of him the same responsibility to carry forward this investigation that was embarked upon by his predecessor and to look at all elements of the crimes within the court's um, statute, which would include, in fact, these crimes of apartheid and crimes against humanity. Uh, I think I answered so far the question about internal resources. Uh, we are going to continue closely monitoring, um, as Sahar and Dr. Anis have mentioned. This is not our first report on um, Israel and Palestine. Uh, and we have published a report on systematic discrimination as well in the past, and we will continue to move it forward. Um, and maybe a last question, which is, um, is it realistic to expect the ICC to prosecute Israelis? Um, well, many would say it's not realistic. If you had asked me maybe five years back, uh, it's not realistic for major international organizations to be speaking of the crime of apartheid. Many would say it's not realistic uh, that we have um, events at the United Nations uh, devoted to examining this crime. In fact, a few years back, there was a report put out by the UN um, that it was forced to retract merely because of the use of this analysis. Um, which was a very uh, strong legal analysis and uh, the public pressure forced a retraction. So we can see there's a shift uh, and we hope that in fact, this paradigm shifts continues uh, going forward. Uh, maybe I will, I will um, end here. I know there's some other questions coming in, but I see some questions for Dr. Anis as well. Yes, yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Thanks for addressing these questions. Uh, there's one question for Dr. Anis, uh, which is about the use of if, if um, do you believe if Zionism was addressed as the root cause of the apartheid in the report, um, would that be more effective? And in, if so, how? Um, I believe that to analyze the situation and the practices of Israel, against the Palestinians would fall short if we ignore the ideological foundation of the Zionism, which is the bedrock of the state of Israel. Because um, uh, let me compare the situation in South Africa with Israel. In, in South Africa, when the South African the National Party decided to dismantle uh, apartheid, it dismantled apartheid. They changed the system, and everything went fine. Nobody, no, nothing. 
disrupted the social process. The people are still there, whites and blacks. Um, the system of equality was established. I know this is sometimes it is, uh, uh, you know, there are some loopholes in it, but the, the state itself remained the same. If we take this in Israel and we say, now Jews will be equal to non-Jews, that means the raison d'etre of Zionism and the Jewish state would disappear. There is no reason to have a Jewish state if Jews in Palestine will be equal to non-Jews. And this is the major difference. Because of this, if, this is, if I am correct in, in uh, this analysis and this approach, any settlement with the Jewish people inside Israel is mute. It cannot be done. It cannot be implemented. The people who are talking about the two-state solution, the one-state solution, blah, 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 all of this is nonsense as long as there is Zionism, which it draws a line between the Jewish people nationals and non-Jewish people nationals. The whole world is divided along this line, but according to Zionism. And the, the Israeli laws are based on this. Now, they declare that this, the land is not occupied land, is not an occupied territory. It is God-given land to the Jewish people. Now, who is going to interpret this slogan uh, realistically when you say that my house in the occupied territory has become the property the inalienable property of a jew from argentina or germany simply because he is a jew you cannot dismantle this jewish state concept and therefore we have to look at the uh, apartheid in the context of the state of Israel based, or uh, we have to take it in the light of the doctrine of Zionism as such. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Dr. Anis. I'd like, I'd like, th there are also other questions. There's one, one interesting question, which I had in mind. Uh, about the applicability of this uh, term apartheid to the refugees, to the Palestinian di diaspora. So how would that apply legally? Uh, uh, because these are the victims of this system, but they are not under its direct subjugation. So uh, this is a challenge to the legal framework. Um, the other uh, uh, interesting question or comment is uh, how, how do we people how do people around the world help uh, push toward change? Um, and I think if, if one compares with South Africa, it's not the international court criminal court that uh, dismantled the apartheid. It was a sort of historical kind of uh, you know. Uh, uh, it's a political movement, it's a political 
uh, decision uh, towards historical reconciliation uh, and dismantling of the uh, regime. Uh, it was an almost uh, lots of international pressure, public opinion pressure, but it's, it's, a, it's a homegrown kind of uh, dynamic on the ground. Uh, we don't see this in the case of Palestine, of course. Uh, there's a fortification of the Zionist project. Um, and then there is this, the, the role of the uh, legal framework or the legal instruments uh, is, is, is different in this case, clearly different. Probably the ideologies are a little bit different. The circumstances, the, the, a lot of, there are a lot of kind of uh, uh, factors that are specific to each case. Um, so, uh, and I know that uh, theorists, legal theory, I mean, uh, political theorists, critical political theorists are, uh, have answers to how do we uh, make the case about settler colonialism and the making of subjected ethnicities or, or minorities. Um, so in that, in that sense, it's, it's, it's a little bit beyond one-to-one uh, -one comparison. Um, and, and if we look at the Palestinian case, we, we do have, um, there's a logical question. So how do we, how do we perceive change? Uh, obviously there's a lot of, uh, this is a major role for uh, people, people's movements. Um, there's a, the cultural domain, um, and the political domain internationally, uh, is very critical. Public opinion is very critical. Um, uh, before reaching the court uh, field or sphere, um, also there was one 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 question or note about this. Uh, basically, how do we impact Western democracy, the democracies? Uh, uh, how do we convince them that there is actually something very very fundamentally wrong? with the situation with Zionism and, and so forth. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, this is, uh, I'll, I'll just give you uh, another round for your uh, maybe final uh, remarks. Um, we were happy to uh, continue this discussion further, but uh, I think the, the, the main points of the, of the report uh, has been, have been addressed. Uh, but if you have more thoughts on, on this, uh, uh, please uh, uh, sh share with us. Thank you. So, Thank you. Um, these are important questions and each one needs a session. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, let me summarize, uh, starting with the question of the refugees. Actually, the question of the refugees, I'm so glad that you cited because the issue of Palestinian refugees who are still living in refugee camps for the last 73 years, it's a case in point that with Zionism, no compromise, absolutely no compromise, because the Israelis will tell you, if we allow the Palestinian refugees to come home in accordance with Resolution 194, that will end the Jewish people state, which means it has to be a ghetto, a Jewish ghetto in order to accept 
Palestinian refugees who have inherent right to go back to their properties and their land. It is mutually exclusive. If the Palestinians will go back to their home, there will be no Jewish state as defined by Zionism, as defined by Zionism. We have no problem between uh, uh, Jews and non-Jews in Palestine historically, no problem. But in the sense of Zionism, to allow 5 million Palestinian refugees, they will tell you that will end the dream of Zionism. That is the issue. And now you can compare that those Palestinian refugees who live across the border from their homes cannot go while a, a Brazilian Jew or a German Jew can come and become an, an Israeli citizen the next day morning. That is the gist of discrimination and apartheid in the state of the Jewish people. Now, to change, if you want to change this setup, you have to end Zionism. As I said, the resound death of Zionism would terminate if Jews become equal to non-Jews, which cannot be done in the doctrine of Zionism. And what I'm, if, if you you must recall that in 1975 there is a General Assembly resolution which equated Zionism with racial discrimination. Unfortunately, that resolution was uh, crossed uh, for political consideration, not not uh, ideological or or uh, legal, because the same fundamental documents on which that resolution was established are still there. They have not changed. Therefore, what we are talking about changing the tools or the legal tools to change this, it cannot be done. It can be done in one sense, to terminate Zionism. If we cannot terminate Zionism, that will stay on indefinitely, as long as there is Zionism. Now, what you, your question is, how we see the Western uh, democracies viewing this situation? Unfortunately, unfortunately, I have to be blunt. The Western it produced all the evils that a human being has witnessed. Europe produced Nazism, produced fascism, produced Zionism, produced racial discrimination and apartheid. All of these things are European product. That mentality, that culture, that produced all these evils. Therefore, the Europeans are happy. They're, they are happy because there is Israel. They don't want Jews among the Gentile world. And that is, uh, Herzl realized this from day one. 
He said our our allies in our adventure are the anti-Semites. Therefore, Europe is very happy with, with Israel and keep it as racist state as possible because it does not affect Europeans. It affects Orientals like us. Uh, did I answer all your questions? Uh, I, I hope so. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you. Um, uh, th th these were also the audience's uh, questions. Um, uh, okay. Um, Akshaya, would you, would you like to respond? Uh, maybe um, just a few last words, uh, especially to this important question about what regular people can do around the world to support our effort to gain results and specifically uh, what we uh, what we hope and expect from these Western democracies. Um, Western democracies pride themselves on being responsive to their citizens. And I think in the past few days, we have seen unprecedented mobilization in the streets in Western democracies, including in Washington over this weekend um, with uh, rallies to support the Palestinian cause and also um, in Detroit when President Biden visited there in the context uh, of the ongoing bombardment of Gaza. And I think that further mobilization is what will push these policymakers and politicians to change their approach. But very specifically, uh, we are asking for scrutiny of continued arms sales to the extent that they go to Jewish authorities, Israeli authorities who are committing the crime of apartheid and have not shown any intent in changing or ending their commission of the crime. They've not taken any steps. They don't even acknowledge. They don't even recognize their role um, in this system and structure. Uh, and so we are calling uh, on citizens to use their power, their voice, to speak to their elected representatives. And in the case of the US, there is now an unprecedented effort inside the US Congress to block an arms sale to Israel. Um, going back to the question of what's realistic, if you had asked a few years ago or even a few months back, if the US Congress would be debating blocking arms sales to Israel, many would have laughed because there is a very long-standing expectation that the US as a, an ally to Israel will sell these weapons, will support weapons transfers, will fund them without any kind of caveat. And, and now these questions are being asked. Uh, so we would encourage uh, any citizens to create similar pressure in their governments. In the UK, this conversation needs to be brought forward as well. In Canada, in France, uh, we are also seeing really powerful labor movements um, in places like South Africa and in Italy. There have been efforts by people like dock workers who have said, we will not unload the ship that's carrying weapons or carrying imports from the settlements. So there's a whole range of activities that can be taken by average citizens to support um, our work, which is to scrutinize and to ostracize and to condemn these crimes, uh, specifically the crimes of apartheid and the crime of persecution. Um, 
I wanted to uh, remind the event um, that will be taking place at the UN, and I will be sure to put the link into the chat before we end today, because this is another very important opportunity to ensure that other governments uh, at the global level are being engaged. It's being led by South Africa and Namibia, who have a great deal of credibility, as well as the Nelson Mandela Center. So uh, I'll, as maybe we close, I'll make sure to put that link into the chat. And uh, I see there was a question about the Israeli government uh, responding to this report. The response has been very negative. Uh, um, attacks on individually, those who have researched and written this report, and also um, attacks and smears on our organization. But we believe that we must all have the courage to fight against the crime of apartheid wherever it takes place, whoever commits it. Uh, as I mentioned, Human Rights Watch is not using this term just for Israel. We are also engaged in a very active advocacy campaign against apartheid in Myanmar. And so my last point is in the interest of solidarity globally, global citizens who are concerned about Palestine, I urge you to also be concerned and as engaged on the situation of the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, because that gives us a degree of credibility to show that we are equally concerned for the rights of all people in all places. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, th thanks, Aksaya. Uh, Sahar, would you, would you like to add? There's Just also a question about how, how, do we, how do we end Zionism, uh, which we received from the audience. If, uh, and whether education education is 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 a, is a key tool for uh, for for affecting change of course so. I, I, I think as you said uh, um, core decisions at all is not bringing the change so even if we succeed in the icc level or the icj level as it was in the wall case in 2004 there is a need for political will in order to take political decisions because at the end of the day the change is about politics it's not about legal terms so this is why i totally agree with akshaya on the campaigning and the education of the uh, uh, mass movements around the world in order to put pressure on the correct places and i would remind ourselves with the a UN uh, a Human Rights Council list, the black list of the companies that is complicit with the uh, Israeli occupation that should be uh, boycotted and sanctioned. So actually there is tools on the international level that we can use as ordinary people in order to push our governments to take the correct side and to, to make the correct uh, decisions and this is what it needed uh, and since there was really an increase in the solidarity and the activities in the last couple of weeks we should take this advantage and continue to uh, pressure for this uh, uh, movement uh, like uh, move mobilization and here like the importance of such comprehensive reports that can educate much more about why we are calling this situation apartheid or persecution. And it's not just uh, like, and here where we can say it's not anti-Semitic at all. It's, 
based on facts that it proves uh, all the elements of an international crime that was developed not in the context of Israel-Palestine, but somewhere else, but it's applicable to our context. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I think we're uh, close to uh, ending this session. Uh, I'd like to uh, second what Dr. Anis has said about the report and about the efforts, uh, the excellent uh, report by the uh, Human Rights Watch. And, um, and, and, and thank, uh, thank you all for your uh, presentations, uh, Akshaya, Sahar, and uh, Dr. Anis. Um, we've, uh, I think we've got uh, very interesting questions uh, and discussion, and uh, this is just, uh, you know, highlighting uh, an, an important report, uh, um, which is we see it as, as part of a larger effort, as a part of a movement, uh, which, which uh, uh, will, will surely uh, bring, uh, you know, bring us closer to, to, uh, to a better future. Um, so um, I don't know, I don't know if there's uh, any last last uh, comment would you would like to add. Uh, if uh, if not, uh, just thank you very much and um, thank our audience uh, for their questions and engagement. Uh, and uh, we'll will be will continue uh, our webinars um, and we'll will hope for a change for a better future. Thank you. Thanks.